Almost. Chapter 99 The siren jolted Tom from sleep. His body twisted on his little cot. His brain was scalded with exhaustion. He flew ten, twelve, fourteen hours a day. He closed his eyes at night and saw his trembling windshield, felt the shaking of his seat as he opened fire, jerked his head involuntarily as his bullets chewed bits of metal off Nazi airplanes. When he slept, he dreamt of flying. It felt as if he had closed his eyes for only a few minutes when the siren started up again. Sometimes he dreamt of the siren, and even in his sleep he was afraid that the siren was really going off and he was losing precious minutes of altitude and interception. Tom was one of three thousand fighter pilots. Modern warfare had come down to such tiny numbers. Three thousand knights of the air who threw themselves into the sky as a shield against the oncoming German air force, the Luftwaffe. For the first time in his life, Tom knew complete rage. He had been afraid for so many years that it was a blessed relief to have something tangible and evil to shoot at. He had joined the Royal Air Force in November 1938, the day after his conversation with Gunther about radar. He met a few of his former students who wondered what had taken him so long. He contacted a secret tribe he had always dreamed of, men his own age who knew that there was going to be war, and ignored or found amusing the endless antics of the appeasers. Tom was utterly humbled by their courage. They had all read reports about the hopelessness and doom of modern aerial combat. They knew nothing of the existence of radar, but they were unafraid. Tom met two men who had been present at his great debate at Oxford in 1933, who had voted for the resolution to refrain from fighting for king and country. One of them was abashed and shamefaced. The other just laughed and said, Oh, but I'm still not fighting for king and country. At the time, king and country were appeasers. <laughs> still are. And I still refuse to fight for them. Now I fight for myself. I am just sad that I shall be saving them as well. They were mostly children of the lower middle classes. Very few came from England's elite schools. There were some refugees from the continent. By far the most skilled pilots were the Poles. They had a careless sort of courage which allowed them to perform maneuvers which took Tom's breath away. They did victory rolls when returning from combat, one roll for each German plane shot down which none of the British pilots had the stomach for. To do a victory roll when you don't know what sort of structural damage your airplane has sustained in combat. Ugh. But they were the highest scoring pilots. Some of the British were good, Locke, Bader, Lacey, Lane, but more than 80% of the pilots had never even shot at an enemy plane. This was partly luck. Finding enemy planes in the endless blue was very, very hard. And even if you found them, they were so easy to lose again. It happened all the time. One moment the sky was full of planes, the next it was empty. And you had to go home alone. The battle was hard. Very hard. You flew 
far more than you fought. But the RAF had some significant tactical advantages. They had more fuel for fighting. The Messerschmitt BF-109 fighters could only spend half an hour over England before having to turn back to France. The Spitfires had a tighter turning radius than the 109s and so could get into a kind of spiral turning war with the German fighters, inching closer to a good firing position with every loop. The 109s, though, had a fuel injection system which gave them a significant advantage in a dive. When the British fighters dove, the engine cut out immediately and had to be restarted. In the pilot community, Tom was rather famous for finding a solution to this problem, which was to loop as you dove to keep the petrol flowing to the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. The German 109s, though, had the distinct disadvantage of a weaker wing structure, which meant that they could indeed dive faster to evade the British guns, but at the risk of tearing their own wings off. Their fuel reserves were also stored in an L-shaped tank around the pilot, which, although shielded, tended to go up like a bomb when hit. Tom joined one of the five RAF squadrons which had hurricane fighters and quickly grew to love the airplane. The hurricane was an incredibly stable gun platform. The recoil never jarred the pilot. It could take an incredible amount of punishment and still fly well. More than once, Tom had returned from a sortie and walked around his bullet-ridden hurricane, wondering not only how it was still able to fly, but how it was able to stay in one piece. After Munich, war had come quickly. In March of 1939, Hitler invaded and absorbed the remainder of Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain had panicked and given British guarantees to preserve the integrity of Poland and Romania. This was considered by Churchill to be a disaster since it was now much harder to invade Germany in the West than in 1938. Also, Poland was a semi-totalitarian state which had joined with Hitler to feast on Czechoslovakia the previous year and was not an edifying land to protect. In April, Chamberlain introduced conscription. The same month, Stalin offered to create a mutual front against German aggression with England and France. Chamberlain's government did not respond to these offers. Litvinov, the Russian foreign secretary who made these offers, was fired, and Molotov replaced him. Churchill went on the open attack, saying... I beg HMG to get some of these brutal truths into their heads. Without an effective Eastern Front, there can be no satisfactory defense of our interests in the West, and without Russia, there can be no effective Eastern Front. If HMG, having neglected our defenses for a long time, having thrown away Czechoslovakia and all that Czechoslovakia meant in terms of military power, having committed us without examination of the technical aspects to the defense of Poland and Romania, now reject and cast away the indispensable aid of Russia, and so lead us in the worst of all ways into the worst of all wars, they will have ill-deserved the confidence and, I will add, the generosity with which they have been treated by their fellow countrymen. Things were very dark when Churchill went to visit the French front in the summer of 1939. Along the Rhine, all 
temporary bridges were withdrawn. Soldiers glared at each other across the river. There were 42 German divisions along the western border. At the time of Munich, there had been 13. Anthony Eden offered to go to Russia to negotiate the tripartite pact with Russia. Chamberlain refused. Instead, he sent Mr. Strang, a political nobody, to negotiate with the Russians. He refused to even send the inconsequential Mr. Strang by airplane, instead sending him by a slow boat, which took several weeks. Stalin was not slow to understand the British signals. In August, Hitler offered to sign a non-aggression pact with Russia. He offered to send Ribbentrop immediately, with full powers of negotiation, and to accede to whatever Stalin wanted. Ribbentrop arrived in Moscow on August 23rd, 1939. By that evening, the German-Soviet non-aggression pact was signed. At this point, Churchill said, war was inevitable. No longer afraid of Russian intervention, Hitler was able to attack Poland, which he did on September 1st, 1939. This triggered declarations of war from both England and France within three days. The war did not turn westward for over six months. Churchill ascended to become Prime Minister on May 10, 1940. At the same time, Hitler attacked France in a surprise push through the Ardennes. It was not lost on either the French or the British that Hitler used Czechoslovakian tanks in his attack. France fell in six weeks. The Germans attacked through the Ardennes forest where the French defensive Maginot line was weakest. They pushed into France with great speed. On May 15, 1940, Churchill was awoken at 7.30 in the morning by Renaud, the French premier, who told him that the battle was lost, that the Germans have gained too much ground. Churchill told him not to worry because all such advances must halt after five or six days to get supplies at which time a counter-attack was possible. But the French had nothing to counter-attack with. Although they had more tanks than the Germans, they had spread their strength along the length of the entire front. But, as Churchill said, one cannot be strong everywhere, and it was standard to keep a large number of mobile troops in reserve, so that when the main thrust of the enemy became clear, one could counter-attack but the French had no reserves to throw at the German advance. Communication lines were cut. Chaos reigned. Renaud received a postcard discovered on the body of an officer who had committed suicide in Le Mans. It read, I am killing myself, Mr. President, to let you know that all my men were brave, but one cannot send men to fight tanks with rifles. England was rapidly using up her strength, especially in the air. The RAF stationed almost 500 airplanes on French soil, but in one day of ground attacks, the 14th, lost 67 aircraft, while only shooting down 53 German planes. That night, 
the British had only 206 serviceable aircraft. The French wanted the RAF to stop the German tanks, which Churchill disagreed with. It was the business of artillery to stop the tanks, he said. The RAF was only to be used to cleanse the skies over the battle. He sent another four squadrons, leaving only 25 squadrons in England, which was considered the bare minimum needed to defend the island. The British troops, almost 200,000, were being forced to the sea towards Dunkirk by the advancing German tanks. In despair, Churchill decided to send a flotilla of whatever ships could be thrown across the channel in a desperate attempt to rescue as many troops as possible. France was a lost cause. The RAF withdrew, leaving a large number of planes in flames because they could not be flown due to mechanical failure or lack of fuel. Endless streams of ships sailed from England to Dunkirk. For some unfathomable reason, Hitler stopped his tanks two days from Dunkirk. It was possible that he was saving them for his assault on the south of France, or was afraid of losing them to the swamps ahead, or was seduced by Goering, who wanted to display the strength of his Luftwaffe by bombing the British and French armies huddled on the beaches without weapons into oblivion. But the bombs of the Luftwaffe were largely ineffective. They buried themselves in the sand of Dunkirk before exploding, doing little more than throw sand around. Churchill hoped against hope to rescue 50,000 troops from Dunkirk. The British recovered more than 200,000. The beach was pure chaos. Those who got away in small vessels were strafed by German aircraft. But over the beach, the battle was, for Tom, a pure, grim pleasure. Coming over the channel, the beach was easy to find. Some nearby oil refineries were on fire and sent an uneven black pillar of smoke into the heavens. Flying over the beach for the first time, Tom saw a BF-109 pilot flying low, strafing the waves where the men huddled, scattered, and fell apart under his shells. Tom knew what it was like to have ground targets. He had been part of the campaign to bomb bridges. A pilot's concentration was never focused behind him. If an enemy came in from the six, he never saw what hit him. Tom had felt a savage blast of anger as he settled in behind the German airplane. Soldiers cheered, waving their empty rifles from the surf. Tom adjusted his scope to two hundred yards' distance. The 109 was not weaving. The German pilot was intent on his defenseless targets. Tom felt a black patience seize him. It was almost dreamy. The 109's wings filled his gun sight. Tom squeezed his trigger. His hurricane shook dimly beneath him. The smell of cordite filled his tiny cockpit. Silver flecks of metal spun off the 109, bouncing off Tom's windshield. The German pilot took no evasive action. Tom dipped down slightly into the slipstream. He didn't want to miss the German plane and accidentally hit the soldiers on the beach. 
he squeezed again more flecks of metal. Then a terrific explosion. Tom imagined that he could hear the cheering from the soldiers. He pulled back on his joystick with all his might, both for fear of flying into the explosion and because he had not looked behind him for almost a minute. Oh, it was not a moment too soon. As he pulled up, the flicker of tracers passed by his window. Tom was amazed. He imagined that as he had been sighting on the first 109, a second had dropped in behind him. The cool of a pilot who would let Tom destroy another German rather than fire too soon. Tom craned his head as he felt his cheeks, his blood, almost his teeth groaning downward from the force of his lifting turn. He stood on his wing and caught a flashing glimpse of the second 109 turning behind him. There was nothing to do but keep turning. He could turn more tightly, so hoped to get the German airplane in his sights. Then the Messerschmitt flashed by his window. He caught a glimpse of a distinctive yellow pattern on the fuselage and a scratch of blonde from the cockpit. Tom cried out. It was very close. He wrenched his joystick from right to left, feeling like a whirling bag of blood as all his body fluids changed to direction. The beach rolled madly before him. He opened his throttle to maximum and craned his head, his eyes scouring the sky. Nothing. He leveled out cautiously, then cried out again as more traces flew past him and he felt the impact of bullets hitting his airplane somewhere. Tom groaned and threw himself into another turn. He wondered if he had enough height to loop downwards. Probably not. His altimeter read 900 feet, even if the engine cut out. His arms ached with the strain of his turn. He glanced down, desperate to check his flesh for unseemly openings. He wanted to check with his fingers, but needed all of them. Tracers flashed by once more, and Tom cursed violently. Is this fucking kraut some kind of mind-reader? He threw himself into a shallow roll and came out at a hundred feet heading inland. He sank down to treetop level, glancing at his fuel gauge. I can't spend more than another five minutes on this, or it's the channel for me. Not good. The German e-boats are strafing bailed pilots now. The ground dipped, and Tom's hurricane fell into the depression, its wings waggling as he wiggled left and right. I don't have the fuel to open it up and climb, he thought. I could put on the brakes and hope he overshoots me, but that's very risky, and this crowd is damn good. If he is ready for me to put on the brakes, I'm a sitting duck. Rising over a low hill, Tom saw a little town. More tracers flashed by, and he saw some punctures open up on his right wing. He jerked the controls, terrified that he might have lost some hydraulics, but the hurricane responded immediately. Tom flew low into the town, just over the rooftops. The streets weren't reliably wide enough to accept his 40-foot wingspan. Tom smiled suddenly, then laughed incredulously, remembering his pretend aerial feat of 30 years before in the famous Battle of the Gardens. Next time I fly, I'm stuffing my pockets with sycamore leaves for luck. He saw a church spire ahead of him. The thought hit him immediately, and he acted without considering it. Keep something between him and me. He threw his plane into a tight right turn, then wrenched the joystick from right to left so low that he prayed for two gifts, that his plane could take the strain and that his right wing 
would not strike a roof. Tom circled the spire of the church. It afforded little protection from bullets, but it allowed him to turn with something between him and the German plane. In a moment the mottled roofs of the town had flashed by under the sloping nose of his hurricane. The hair on the back of his neck was standing up. His buttocks had gone numb from sitting near an engine on full throttle for many minutes. Tom passed by the burning oil derrick. He thought of using the smoke as cover, but knew it was not thick or deep enough. Then he spied a naval destroyer churning through the sea ahead, and his mouth went suddenly dry. Again, childhood images flashed through him, not a bad sign, I hope, of Gunther battling Reginald over a destroyer back in the days of relative peace. All Allied ships were instructed to fire on all approaching planes because friendly aircraft could not be identified in time. It was a terrible risk, but it seemed impossible to shake off the 109 growling behind him. Tom dropped the belly of his hurricane almost to wave level and willed his airplane to go faster. He held his joystick tight against him, every muscle rigid, hunching forward as if that would help. If he set himself up as bait, then the 109 would have to fly straight and would be a better target for the ship's gunners. And Tom was low, so hopefully the gunners would see the RAF insignia on the wings of his hurricane, and they would also see that he was in no position to strafe the ship, and so not a German. Tom screamed as the grey hull of the destroyer flew closer. Through the turning haze of his propeller he saw flashes as the ship's anti-aircraft guns opened up, but he couldn't tell what they were firing at. He imagined being torn apart by German or British guns at any moment. Nothing but the roar of his engine. He allowed himself half a second too long before hauling his stick back with all his fading might. His hurricane, God bless its indestructibility, rose immediately, and Tom winced as he winged over the deck of the ship. Immediately he cut his engine to a quarter power. If the 109 was still behind him, he would just have to bail out and take his chances in the water. But the crowd wouldn't strafe the waves, not after our dogfight. His eyes scoured the sky. Nothing. Either the destroyer got the German, or he had turned away when Tom approached it. No matter, Tom flew low on minimal power and landed, he was later told, on petrol fumes alone. Churchill had taken power in May 1940 after Chamberlain had waged a disastrous war with Norway where he had told the RAF pilots not to use bombs for fear of escalating the conflict. Due to his indecision, the Germans had occupied Norway almost without firing a shot. Parliament had revolted. Chamberlain had been cast down. Halifax and Churchill were the leading contenders for the new prime minister. Halifax declined. Churchill took over, and the character of the war changed almost immediately. Churchill did not throw out the appeasers. He believed that victors must be magnanimous, and that trying to run a wartime government without the experience of able men would be a disaster. As he said, If the present tries to sit in judgment on the past, it will lose the future. 
Reginald was not fired when Churchill took power. He was fired in early August 1940 during the height of the Battle of Britain because he was heard talking about the need to come to terms with Hitler. Churchill fired him personally and gave his position to Hart, who was performing most admirably. Reginald had enough money, he hoped, to last the rest of the war without working. He and Wendy stayed in London because Reginald believed that the story of why he had been fired had branded him a coward, so he stayed under the path of German bombers in order to fight the impression. They did send their daughters out of London for fear of the nightly bombings, which had begun sporadically. They were invited to stay at a house just outside London to live with Catherine at her late parents' house. Reginald and Wendy opposed that, ostensibly on the grounds that it would be too close to combat, but it was really because of Tom. Quentin overrode their decision by promising money in the hope of effecting some distant future family reconciliation. Tom was not allowed to see the girls. It was the last weapon that Reginald could wield. Reginald had been discredited. He was scorned in all the circles that mattered to him. Wherever Tom went, people bought him drinks and praised his courage and fortitude. Reginald, who had based so much of his self-worth on his superiority to his younger brother, had almost nothing left with which to hurt Tom. Except Jocelyn and Lillian. Catherine's house was within ten minutes of Tom's airfield by air. When he flew over the village, he saw the distinctive red roof of Catherine's house and would try to spot the girls. A few times they were outside playing and shielded their eyes to see his airplane. He waggled his wings and they waved and danced and cheered. Tom wasn't allowed to see them, but he had told Catherine which airplane was his and the girls knew him by sight. He tried to measure their growing height relative to an ancient rusted swing set. By now, it had been almost two years since Tom had seen his nieces. He missed them terribly, but it only struck him sometimes. He would awake in tears or dream about them or remember sheltering them in his arms as they whispered secrets in the dark. He could recall their scents, the exact color and texture of their hair and their belly buttons, one inny, one outy. He remembered their insatiable hunger for the details of his and Reginald's childhoods. He felt terror at the thought that he was missing everything, that the years were falling away from them, never to return. He might never see them again until they were adults, and perhaps then he could explain everything. But in the meantime, he thought, through all their years of becoming adults, they are being fed nothing but propaganda. But there was nothing to do. He had no legal rights. Ruth had suggested that she invite the girls out and that he join them. But they would take such thrilling news right back to their parents. And so? That was a tough question. What did he have to lose? He wasn't seeing the girls anyway. So what if he stole one day with them? Even if he didn't tell the truth about what had happened with Wendy that fateful day. Even if he didn't tell the truth 
about Reginald's pre-war record of cowardice and appeasement at the Foreign Office, it would only be one day. And he was a war hero now. Surely that would count for something with the girls. Something that might overcome the propaganda they were doubtless getting from their parents. (sighs) But they were kept away from him. He wrote to them every week and made copies so they could read the letters when they got older if they didn't get them now. His letters were never returned, but Tom didn't know if that was because they were never delivered or because the girls didn't want to reply. Generally, for the sake of his heart, he went for the former. It was hard to imagine that their former love had been so completely supplanted by lies. Oh, Tom, he imagined Reginald saying, we keep inviting him, but he never comes. He never writes, never calls. But he's famous now, so he's probably forgotten all about you. Ah, poison. Pure poison. His mind kept returning to the hope that the girls somehow knew that their parents were lying about everything. Children have such keen eyes for falsehood. They might not know now, not right now, but in time, when I tell them the truth, it might all makes sense in hindsight. It sometimes made Tom angrier than the war. The fucking cowardice of withholding children from a man they love. What degeneration could be at the root of using such weapons? It is inconceivable and monstrous that to save my nieces I must also save my goddamned brother and his lying bitch of a wife. And it was this that kept Tom going. The image of throwing himself over the island to shield Jocelyn and Lillian. And Jacqueline, his wife, and their son. Tom had been terrified that she would strike out at him or or be married or be cold to make him pay for his own former coldness. But that night on the landing, when she had come home to see him, he had risen and stood before her, flinching with every muscle of his new soul, a kite in a hurricane, terrified because she held all his future purpose in her lips. He had been weeping, his eyes wide. She had a sparkling ring on her finger. She had frowned on seeing him, but it wasn't a frown of anger, of confusion or rejection. It was a frown which said, You almost took too long, Tom. She had taken off her ring and pushed it into the pocket of her brown coat, throwing her head back beautiful under the light of a single bulb, her skin bright and flawless against the backdrop of flaking paint. Tom had fallen to his knees before her, He apologized, professed his love, begged her forgiveness, admitted his fear of war, of death, of children raised only to be burned. Someone brushed past him on the landing, but he kept on blind to everything but her. And she had stood over him, still and silent, her mouth open and eyes wide. After half an hour or so, Jacqueline let him into her flat, sat him on the sofa, made him some tea, then went to break off her engagement. 
She returned after an hour and a half, in tears herself. And Tom never left after that. He had slept on the sofa for five weeks while they arranged a hasty wedding, then had moved to her bed. Jacqueline became pregnant, they later figured it out, the very day that German troops began pouring into Poland. Tom had fallen back asleep when he was woken up with a rough shake. Victor Beamish, his CO, stood over him. What time is it? asked Tom. Four o'clock, replied Victor in the afternoon. Look, I know you're knackered. Can you do another one? It's a real son of a bitch. Tom sat up trying to blink the exhaustion from his eyes. Bombed an orphanage. They're still trying to find all the parts. What, on purpose? Who knows anymore? I'd take it, but I have to report upstairs. Everyone else is out, and I don't trust anyone else on this base to go up alone. Tom nodded. Is my bird ready? Victor nodded. I got the call in the dispersal hut five minutes ago. He's trying to escape up the coast towards Cromer. It's a Dornier 17 with one escort, a 109. It's shitty out there, Tom. Low clouds, 600 feet. You'll be out of radio contact almost as soon as you leave the strip. Just go to the coast, then turn left and fly as far as Cromer. You don't see them? Just come back, all right? Tom threw on his flight suit, gulped scalding, burnt, bitter coffee, then ran across the airfield, parked with hastily filled craters to his hurricane. He jumped into his cockpit, closed the canopy, then started the motor. A mechanic removed the chocks from under his wheels. He taxied forward, then opened his throttle wide and roared into the sky. The cloud cover was at about 700 feet. Tom kept shaking his head, trying to loosen the spider webs of sleep from his brain, staring at the running streams of light rain on his cockpit. What the hell is a German doing flying around in this weather? he thought. As he approached the coast, just below the drizzly cloud cover, he banked left. As soon as he did, he saw the Dornier 17 cruising along about 400 yards away. They were called flying pencils because of their long, thin shape and bulbous nose. Tom wondered if the pilot had seen him. Perhaps he could fly into the clouds, accelerate, then drop closer. There was a flicker from the back of the German plane. The rear gunner had seen him and was doubtless screaming for the pilot to begin evasive maneuvers. Surely enough, the Dornier began banking. Tom looked around for the 109 but saw nothing. He closed in behind the Dornier. At about 250 yards, he adjusted his gun sight to 200 feet. Taking down a bomber was relatively easy. The rules of fighter-to-fighter combat come out of the sun, always be above, hold your fire until the enemy fills your gun sight, meant little against bombers. You found and memorized their weak spots, kept your eyes peeled for fighter escorts, and other than that, you just closed and kept shooting. The rear gunner of the Dornier kept firing. Tom lowered his hurricane onto the trail of the turning bomber. He thought, I am protected by a 12-cylinder engine and bulletproof glass, and I have eight guns. He is trying to maneuver his gun in a 200-an-hour slipstream while his pilot throws the bomber around, trying to dodge. Tom felt quite comfortable, except that he couldn't see the reported 109. He had only seen one pilot succumb to a rear gunner, and it had haunted him. A friend of his had been following a Dornier down, 
gunning the whole way, just in case the German pilot was faking. A few seconds before hitting the water, the rear gunner had found his mark. The British pilot had followed the Dornier into the channel. The Dornier's evasive maneuvers were awfully predictable. They were like a pendulum. Tom banked slightly into the bomber's next turn. The slim airplane filled his gun sight. Tom fired, feeling a deep satisfaction as his hurricane thrummed beneath him. He expected his browning guns to chew the Dornier apart, but they seemed to have no effect except that the German plane banked sharply to the left, then rose quickly, too quickly, it seemed, into the clouds. Tom swore and pulled back on his joystick. He flew into the low clouds, losing visibility instantly. It looked like the kind of cover which went up for two, three thousand feet, but what if it wasn't? Tom pictured finding the Dornier limping along above the cloud cover under the fading blue and opened up his throttle. Within a few minutes, Tom did break through the roof of the clouds. It was always like coming up from exceptionally dirty water. The sun was settling over the blood-red boiling lava of the clouds. Tom cut his throttle by half and banked, slowly his eyes boring into the cloud tops, straining to see even the smallest dot. He did. He saw it. He was above the plane. The sun was low, but enough to use as a blinding shield for his approach. Tom cut his power a little more. His greatest weakness as a pilot was to overshoot his target, especially in a dive. It didn't do much good to open fire for a second or two before having to pull up or dive away. As Tom descended towards the speeding airplane, the water running into tiny drops on his windscreen, then disappearing, he felt a shock as he realized that it was a 109, the 109 that had been doing such a piss-poor job of guarding the Dornier. Ah, well. Tom adjusted his gun sight to take into account the narrower wingspan of the Messerschmitt. The pilot had not seen him. He was going east. Tom was coming in from the sun, setting in the west. Tom felt another shock as he saw the yellow insignia on the 109's wings. Some deep and associative part of his brain made the connection. It was the same insignia that he had seen that terrible day at Dunkirk when he had been chased for over ten minutes by an ace. Tom's lips curled as the 109 filled his gun sights. His fist tightened on the trigger. Dancing sunlight played along the left wing of the 109 as bits of metal erupted from its surface. The pilot had lost none of his skills. Tom was already pushing the nose of his hurricane forward, anticipating that the German plane would start an immediate dive, the standard evasive tactic of the fuel-injected 109. But the 109 went into a straight, looping climb. Tom's eyes widened. He had never seen that happen, not even once. The son of a bitch wants to loop me. This was dangerous. The 109s were better in a loop. And I don't want that fucker on my tail again. No destroyers around to save me this time. For a moment, Tom considered throwing in the towel. A strong, unknown instinct was insisting that he do so. It would be easy. Dive into the clouds, change direction, fly below the cover a mile or two away, and all would be well. Tom shook his head slightly. Go home, said a strange voice in his head. Go home, K-1. 
get some sleep. This fight has no happy ending. He almost, almost succumbed. But then he thought, no, I have the home team advantage this time. In May, I was over his territory, low on fuel, and he saw me first. Now, I know where he is. We're over England, and he's returning from an escort duty and can't have more than a few minutes of fuel left for dogfighting. With a profound mental shrug, Tom made a feint to the right and then stood on his left wing, hauling his plane sharply around. When he saw it, the 109 was just coming out of its loop, and they were careening towards each other. Tom never liked games of chicken. He had seen too many collisions. What if both pilots decided to pull up to avoid each other? It was also very difficult to shoot an oncoming plane. The target was just too small. So Tom pushed his stick forward and cut his power to one quarter. His engine cut out. Groaning, his teeth gritted and eyes bulging, Tom did a forward loop. His propeller restarted as he came up, upside down. Let's see if he's seen another British pilot do that. He saw a flash of metal against the clouds and hauled his stick to follow. The German pilot was obviously being cautious about fuel. He was going at half throttle, possibly less. He relied on his dodging skills, which were superlative. Try as he could, Tom could detect no pattern. He only fired twice as they dodged and darted over the clouds as the sun sank. The first time was when the 109 skidded to the left, through his gun sight, but by the time Tom fired, the airplane had flashed past. The second time was slightly more sustained as the 109 rolled ahead, but the burst seemed to do nothing. Tom had to stop firing before he wanted to. He had only nine yards of bullets, and nothing was worse than getting the perfect shot and feeling the dead click of empty guns. Tom and the German pilot had gotten into a tight circling pattern which the German must know would end in disaster for him since the 109 couldn't outturn the hurricane. He seemed to realize that and suddenly turned the opposite way. Tom lost track of him, all his blood was on the left side of his brain, when suddenly he heard a distinct change in the roar of his own motor. He glanced to the right and then saw that the 109 was right beside him, not 40 feet away. Tom had never seen a 109 that close. He couldn't help but admire the clean, square lines of the plane. There was no danger. All the fighters were forward firing. He was also curious about the German pilot, who was gesturing something. Tom saw a blonde man giving him the thumbs up, his goggles pushed back on his head. Tom's heart contracted into a tiny knot. Involuntarily, he jerked his stick to the right, closing about ten feet, just to be sure. There was no doubt. Slightly heavier, but the beautiful lines were inescapable. It was Klaus. Klaus seemed to make the connection a few moments after Tom but Tom could see the knowledge hit him. They held each other's eyes for a long, long time. It seemed, as they stared at each other through the roaring sky, that the sun chose that moment to vanish towards the morning of another land. Tom saw Klaus wipe his eye 
cover his mouth, and turn his 109 away. His eyes hung on Tom's for a moment as his cockpit turned, and Tom felt his heart almost fail him. Klaus's eyes, which had always been lively, seemed like holes of dead space, speared through by the darkening evening blue of the sky. Tom felt his own tears starting, which was bad because they obscured vision. He turned towards the 109, which was falling like a stone toward the clouds. Memories of his time at Oxford, the brutal riot in London, Klaus's shining face overjoyed at the roar of the crowd, his mother's hips at breakfast radiating fertility, and their time in Berlin, a mad play, Beethoven, backwards. Tom frowned, squeezing his eyes for a moment, trying to dry his tears. Brother against brother. Friend against friend. It was not what war became. It was what caused war to become. When we were children, we fought for the garden. Now we are men. We fight for the world. Tom plunged into the narrowing hole of cloud that Klaus had passed through. He wished that Klaus's passage had made a kind of tunnel which he could follow. Here, the cloud was thinner. Tom passed into the dark undersea world of an early English evening beneath the clouds. He was over a road heading to a town. A black car wended its way along, disappearing under his right wing. Tom looked up. The 109 was flying evenly ahead over the rolling hills. There was something familiar. Klaus must be very low on fuel, thought Tom, just enough to get over the channel then to glide in. <gasps> glide? Tom remembered the first time that Klaus had taken him into the sky, the sun on the bubble over their heads. He doesn't want to be captured, thought Tom suddenly as he closed in with a quarter of a tank of petrol left, which seemed low, but was all right, and friendly ground below. He could land in a field, turn himself in. They're well treated. I, I would go and visit him. Tom's hand grabbed at his radio, but he realized that Klaus would never be able to hear him. He desperately wanted to talk to him, talk him down, perhaps even get him to join the British side. Oh, he would be so useful with his knowledge and skills. Tom shook his head and adjusted his gun sight. He would wait until Klaus was over the channel, radio his location, get him picked up and locked away. It would be more likely that Reginald would join us, thought Tom. Klaus has killed men fighting for the cause of freedom. Murder of the good is not something that can be recovered from. He is over there with the devils and cannot come back to the light. Klaus's 109 sailed over the town, Tom only 150 yards behind. Tom's engine coughed, and suddenly all his senses rose to full alert. It was a terrible sound. He had only heard it once before when he had coasted in on fumes after his last encounter with Klaus. He looked at his fuel gauge, then 
tapped it violently. Almost empty? I must have been hit, but when? Could be one of two times, either the rear gunner of the Dornier or when he and Klaus were flying towards each other. Maybe they had both gotten off a burst. As the dark houses flashed by under his wings, Tom sobbed openly. I have about thirty seconds to make a decision. I am in a perfect position to fire. If I shoot him down, he will crash into the town. If I let him go, he will return and kill more of us, and we all might fall. Tom saw a splash of dying color ahead of him, beyond Klaus's 109. His engine coughed and caught again. Tom felt that things were awfully familiar. He touched his gun sight with trembling fingers, then transferred them to his trigger. Then he remembered Churchill, remembered something about an argument to do with children and terrorists, and he dipped his joystick a little to come up under Klaus's 109 and shoot through it into the sky, away from harm. His thumb pressed the worn trigger, and his hurricane shook as its eight guns tore into Klaus's airplane. Klaus's right wing tore free and twisted and fell down. Tom could not tell if the German was bailing out, but doubted it because he was too low and because of what Tom had seen in his eyes above the clouds. He kept on firing, hoping to ignite the remainder of Klaus's fuel or ammunition and blow his plane up in midair. The 109 began falling apart, but did not explode. Tom's engine stopped. In the sudden silence, he could hear the dim click of his empty guns. Klaus's airplane was burning, falling, coming apart, and Tom glided past it, afraid to turn because he would lose altitude. He had a good view, but it was almost dark and there were no lights because of the blackout. All he could see was the flash of a red roof in the path of the burning German airplane. There were no cars on the road, also because of the blackout, and Tom made an instant decision. There was nothing to do but land on the street. He pumped up his hydraulic system by hand and lowered his wheels. Keeping the hurricane aloft was using up all his strength. He wished he could scream down to everyone to keep back from the road knew no one could hear him, even if he threw his windshield off and shouted himself hoarse. And if they're not looking up, they won't even see me. If I had even another five hundred feet, I'd ditch in the drink and take my chances, rather than risk hurting civilians. Tom saw a wide, dark clearing at the end of the street. He checked that his harness was tight and nosed his plane down. When his rubber wheels hit the ground, he could tell he was on the road. The blackness ahead seemed to rush at him suddenly, and he heard screams and saw darting shapes. Tom felt the undercarriage strike something and give way, and the nose pitched forward, and he felt a terrible scraping along the bottom of his plane. It felt as if his own body were being destroyed, and saw sparks flying from under the fuselage. There was a terrible crunch to his right, and his plane spun violently. Pressed back against his seat, Tom felt the impact, but it did him little damage. He continued to careen through the darkness, striking objects until, with a sudden, shocking silence, everything came to a halt. Tom lay in his seat, his head pounding. His hands jerked convulsively. He tasted blood in his mouth 
felt her scrap of tongue hanging down. He felt footsteps on his plane and remembered to open the cockpit. Are you all right, mate? asked a cockney voice. Tom said, yes, yes. Where did the German plane come down? Down now, mate. All we see is to glow, said the man. Which, which one? You got to get patched up first, mate. You landed this crate like a brick. There was a harsh laugh. We all thought the few were going to be one bloody fewer. Get him out of there, said another voice, more dry and professional. Don't stand about nattering. He could be in shock. All right, Gav, said the first voice, slightly resentfully. All right, all on the same side. Tom was helped out. In the swinging beams of a few flashlights, he saw the wounded carcass of his hurricane. An ancient swing set was draped over the nose of his plane. He blinked, staring around. We're in a park? That's right, said the cockney man, leaning against a bicycle. You're one jammy sod, mate. Lend me your bicycle, said Tom. What? I need to see where the German plane came down. Don't worry, that crap is gone. Please. Look, said the tall man, the owner of the professional voice. You've got to go and get yourself looked at. Don't be a hero now. We've got everything under control. But Tom could not shake a peculiar, almost supernatural dread. I'm fine, he said to the tall man before turning to the cockney man. I will bring your bicycle right back here. Well, go on, man scolded the tall man angrily. He's from the RAF. See if you can oblige him. All right, said the cockney man, handing it over reluctantly, the beam from his flashlight waving towards the sky. And turn off that goddamn flashlight, you fool! The cockney man planted his feet and squared his shoulders. Look, mate, we got half a street on fire, not half a mile from here. Are you really worried about my bitty little light? Tom jumped on the bike. The tall man turned to him anxiously. "'Shouldn't we inform someone?' he asked, gesturing at the enormous smoking hurricane. Without answering, Tom turned and pedaled through the darkness towards the flickering light. "'Can't we go a little faster?' demanded Quentin, rapping on the window of the taxicab with his cane. "'Blackout, sir,' said the cab driver, without particular emphasis. "'I can see that, you fool!' snapped Quentin, turning back to the darkness of the cab and realising the absurdity of his sentence. Reginald, Ruth, and Wendy were black shapes against faint windows. As they drove past, someone on the lane lit a cigarette, and the fire seemed to pass behind the black hole of Wendy's head. "'The World War shouldn't be the end of all civility,' said Quentin, to no one in particular. Ruth put her hand on his. It was like feeling the fall of a little tree. "'Damn stupid time to come!' said Reginald, glaring out into the blackness. We can all walk faster than this. They're afraid at night, Reginald, snapped Wendy without turning to look at him. You never comfort them, but I do, I know. Yes, you are quite the wartime saint. Can't quite join the wax, but willing to make taxi trips at night. Wendy's ire rose instantly. Oh, and your war effort was so stellar. Who brought this all upon us, eh, Reggie, my warrior, my hero, all of it? cried Reginald. Yes, I brought all of this. Behold, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Children, whispered Ruth, her voice almost lost in the sudden flood of endless acid. They subsided for a moment, weighed down by the despair in her voice. 
Reginald and Wendy both racked their brittle brains for comebacks sufficiently harsh and truthful to end the endless fucking debate once and for all. "'Is that a fire?' asked Quentin, craning his head as they trundled around a bend. He rapped on the glass again. "'I say, my man, if that's a fire, surely you can turn your lights on for just a moment, eh? Just, just to get us past it, it could save quite some time.' "'Rules, sir,' said the driver. "'I'll pay the fine. Don't worry, I'll Quentin.' sighed Ruth. We don't have the money. There was a pause. Well, snarled Wendy, perhaps if Reginald hadn't been so cosy with Herr Hitler, he could get a job. You have no idea what you're saying, replied Reginald. You open and close your mouth, but you have no idea what comes out. This from a man who, after Munich, after war, still wanted to make terms with the Nazis. Shut up, cried Reginald. You're lucky not to be in jail, Wendy smiled bitterly. I'm not so lucky. Ruth held up a hand. Normally, Reginald hated any melodramatic gestures from his mother, but outlined against the flames of a burning, melting house, they all saw her fingers rise and spread slowly over the grimy glass. Oh, my God, said Ruth hoarsely. Her body suddenly seemed to erupt. She tore at the door. Let me get it said Quentin impatiently, reaching past her. "'Fuck off, Quentin,' said Ruth distinctly, throwing his arm aside. Reginald was shocked. Wendy barked with laughter. Ruth opened the door and almost leapt out of the cab. "'What is wrong with Mater now?' groaned Reginald, casting a look at Quentin. He was sweating slightly, and his face reflected the yellow ribbons of the rising flames. "'Get out and see!' said Wendy, pushing violently at him. "'Oh, I swear to God!' said Reginald, raising his hand. "'Come on,' said Wendy, thrusting her chin forwards. "'We have a witness. Belt me. Then you'll be in jail when you can make some bum buddies, just like in boarding school.' "'I'm getting out,' said Quentin, suddenly levering his portly frame out of the cab. "'Me too,' cried Wendy, loudly jerking out after him. Reginald sat in the car for a moment. He wanted to bury his face in his hands, but he saw the driver's eyes staring at him, reflected in the rearview mirror, and composed his face. He glanced outside and saw the tail of a German aeroplane collapse into the red roof of the flaming house. The fires were so bright and the surrounding blackout so dark that he still had no idea where they were. He heard a terrible drawn-out, unearthly cry. The hair on the back of his neck stood up and he tasted metal and suddenly felt like vomiting. Mother, he whispered. Better get out there, said the driver. Reginald got out of the cab and stood in the crowd facing the blazing house. He saw his mother on her knees wailing and sighed. Fucking melodrama, he thought, casting his eyes about, wondering if he actually had to go and help. Let Dad do it, damn it. It's his fault she's like this to begin with. Some firemen staggered out of the burning house with several items wrapped in dark, glistening sheets. Where are they? shrieked Ruth. Who? Who? said Wendy, dazed. Another cry rose and an old stocky woman pushed her way through the silent crowd, some of whom were crossing themselves, holding a brown 
paper grocery bag. Oh, God, cried Catherine, dropping her bag. Where are the dears? Quentin turned to her, his eyes wide, his face dark. Is this where the girls... Where were you? he demanded. I went to get some. Catherine's face was agonized. Her knuckle was in her mouth. Where are they? Quentin turned to a fireman. Is anyone alive in there? The expression on the man's soot-streaked face did not change. Not alive, sir. Not in there. Not alive. Have you found anything? The fireman shook his head. We can't go in. An airplane crashed. All we can do is stop it spreading. Tom came careening into the street, half jumping off his bicycle as it clattered to the ground. He pushed his way through the shocked, silent throng. Mummy! he cried, lunging forward. Mummy! Oh, God! she screamed, raising dark, wet hands to the black sky, her face a contorted mask of bottomless loss. Tom fell to his knees beside her. The rest of the family closed in. Mummy, said Tom, more softly, terrified. What is it? Her eyes wide with horror. Ruth lifted her skirts. And beneath them, between her legs, two tiny white hands lay on the concrete, clasped together tightly. Catherine screamed, grabbing Tom's head and pulling it to her. The family closed in together, leaning forward, staring at the little bloodless hands, clasped tightly together, attached to nothing. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. I am the writer of Almost. This took well more than a year of my life to write, and it took me many months to record an 18-plus-hour audiobook. If you have found this work of art, this work of literature, to be helpful, to be inspiring, to be moving, please support what it is that I do at freedomain.com forward slash donate.